support for Connecticut East this week comes from EastCon for high school completion, English language instruction and employment and job training services. Go to eastcon.org slash get started today. EastCon, you've got this. Nutmeg Pharmacy, fast, friendly, convenient, local, independent pharmacies that are there for you at nutmegpharmacy.com. And Healing Therapies Through Sharing, offering bodywork modalities for those facing the challenges of a cancer diagnosis and treatment at healingtherapiesct.org. Big changes are coming to kindergarten enrollment in the state in 2024. We talk to EastCon about what that means not only for kids, but parents and school districts too. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. If you're a parent and you have children that will be five years old in 2024 and you want to enroll them for kindergarten in the state, then this is for you, as the age cutoff date will be changing from January to September in 2024. And that means a third of all kids in the state born in 2019 will have to wait a year longer to enter primary school or will have to apply for a waiver. And there are other knock-on effects as well. I caught up with EastCon, who are a supporter of this podcast, to talk to them about the changes to the rules and here is my interview with Diane Gazemba, Director of Early Childhood Initiatives and Anne-Marie Davidson, Early Childhood Specialist. To you both, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. A very important topic that we're talking about today, it is changes to kindergarten cutoff. It means that Connecticut, as I understand, is going to fall more in line with some of the other states. Sounds great, but unfortunately, it sounds like it's all being pushed along at a bit of a bit of a rate. Diane, talk to us about what the changes are. Why are they so major and why are they causing such a headache? Sure. So the cutoff date right now is January 1st, currently. But next year, it will actually be September 1. 2024, which basically means that any families that were intending on sending their child to kindergarten if they had a fall birthday won't be able to do that. So there actually is a process that they'll be able to make a waiver request to a school district if they're interested to do that. But also the question begs, you know, there's not a lot of time for people to know about this. So if they were sending their child to preschool, often people send their child to preschool for two years. It may be three years for some children, not necessarily a bad thing. However, it's just it wasn't part of people's knowledge and plan ahead of time. So had there been more time to plan for it, that might have made a little bit of difference, I think, just in terms of how people are receiving the information. Because this is a new ask. This has been an ongoing conversation that pops up every once in a while. And in reality, it may not be a bad thing for children either. Because if they're ready and prepared and socially, emotionally um, ready to enter kindergarten, then they'll be more successful later in life, especially. Because we know it's not just the beginning of when kids start school. It also has, down the road, many years later, when somebody goes to middle school, it's also their ability to navigate with their peers at that age. And sometimes there's differences later in life as well. So talk to us a little bit about why is this change such a big deal for, you know, for parents, for kids in the communities? As Diane mentioned, if 
you were planning or if your child had a birthday where they were going to turn five before January 1st, you would more likely be planning to send them to kindergarten next fall. And that has changed. And so now we are looking at families needing to provide care for their child for another year. And so then that has that trickle-down effect into the preschool and child care programs and communities who may or may not have enough space for those children who will be remaining in preschool and not able to transition to kindergarten. There's a cost factor uh, for those families as well. And part of what programs in the community have been sharing is that they often are registering or children a year a year in advance. So they may not even have spots for those children who will now be staying in preschool. They may not have space. They may not have staff. We are still actually in the middle of a child care staffing shortage. And that is a result of sort of an ongoing issue, but then exacerbated by the pandemic. So programs may not have staff. So it really becomes a big decision-making point for families in terms of how are they going to take care of their children next year. And then sort of on the flip side, we have an additional impact on public schools in terms of a decreased number of children coming to kindergarten. So they have staff that are currently teaching kindergarten that they may not need for the upcoming year. And then they may also need more preschool spots in their district. So it it has sort of two sides of the same coin, but it has an effect on families and on children and on public schools. So yeah, it has a larger impact across those systems. Don, I want to come back to you. As we're recording this today, actually, the the governor is due to hold a, a press conference with regards to trying to get people to work in the child care industry, which is great, but it's not going to happen overnight, is it? Well, hopefully it will. But I think the way that it will happen is with some incentives that the governor may have as well, potentially. So, you know, why? It's people that work in early childhood often, it's because they love working with young children and they feel that they make a difference. But there has to be some kind of pay incentive as well, quite frankly. Right now, you can make more working at McDonald's than as an entry person in a child care program. It's pretty hard work. It's labor intensive. You are with children for a long day. The difference that you can make in a child's life is immense. So, you know, absolutely we want to attract people that want to work with children, that want to work with families and know that they can actually make a difference. But how do we get those folks? So I think part of the way that we can get them is not just with money, but with what's the impact that you can have. And if we start talking about long-term impact that you have on a child's life and making folks aware of like, wow, that's that's amazing. Like thinking about folks I've taught 20 years ago and when I see them in the grocery store, parents will come up to you and say like, oh my God, I haven't seen you in such a long time. But like, wow, you know, my son is... Doing... So there's a connection. It's a human connection. There's a relationship in early childhood, I think, that's different than in the different years in childcare as well. So a close connection with children and the ability to expand knowledge, but also really the ability to impact the growth and development of children over the long term. Let's talk a little bit more, obviously, about the changes. Like you said, next year, the 2024 year, you know, this is what's causing the the whole issue. Exemptions. There's always exemptions for things. Are there exemptions Mm -hmm. for this? And if so, you know, how and how does that work? Well, yes. Well, potentially there is. So there's 
there could be a waiver process, but each district has been, SDE has said, a waiver process needs to be determined locally. Actually, through EastCon, we've actually brought folks together in our region, and we invited both public school and community programs to be part of that conversation because we, we feel like both need to work together if possible. But a waiver process basically is for our family to say, you know, we'd like our child to still go. My child is going to be four and will meet the age cutoff. However, we were planning on doing this, and we think our child is ready to, do, to go to school next year. What they're really saying is, is your child developmentally appropriate to go to kindergarten? The other side of that is our schools also need to be ready for kids. So it's really kind of a double-edged sword there because it's really important that when we do a screening process that would happen as a result of a waiver, a screening process needs to provide an opportunity for the child to do their best and show their ability. also has to happen pretty close to the time before school starts. So we're in uh, December now. We can do a screening now for next year, right? Because children's development changes so vastly in that amount of time. So thinking about when that would happen. Would it have typically screenings for preschool for the upcoming year for children going to kindergarten often happen in the spring? Even that might be too early, in my opinion. Yeah, there's a lot of things like a lot of variables there, aren't there? And, and mm-hmm. again, you know, I'm sure people leave it to the last minute as well, which then just puts extra pressure on, mm-hmm. on the systems as well. Uh, Marie's not her, her head there. I'm sure you've seen this. And, and again, I suppose one can understand why parents leave it to the last minute, but I suppose the point we're trying to make here is don't. Right, absolutely. So there will be the structured process that districts can put in place in terms of completing that part of the legislation by having a waiver process in place. Families apply and they have to utilize an assessment tool and process to answer that question. Is this child developmentally appropriate to enter kindergarten? But then there also are those families, there are families who, as you said, will wait to register their child for kindergarten until August. And so there needs to be consideration for how that will be addressed. If a family that's registering, let's say in August, has a child who won't turn five before the cutoff date, how will that be addressed as well? So it does have an impact on planning, numbers of students and staffing. But I also think that the most recent guidance that has come out from CSDE around the assessment did help to narrow down the choices that districts have in terms of the assessment process and tools. They identify that it needs to be something that was developed for that purpose of determining developmental appropriateness for kindergarten entry. And there really isn't a tool out there that does that, that answers that question. And what we do know about gathering information from very young children during assessment is that it's best done over time in multiple settings using multiple sources of information, right? So if you can picture asking a five-year-old to perform on demand, it doesn't work very well. (laughs) They don't always do that very well. So we really, in order to get a good picture of what a child that young knows and is able to do, we really want to use developmentally appropriate assessment practices. And so that's some of the challenge around implementing this legislation is that we really don't have the ability to do that when districts have to make that kind of quick decision so that they can move forward with their planning as well. Well, it's interesting because I was on a call this morning and one of the things that I heard was that it's also really important to think about where children are and their abilities to be ready for kindergarten. And I was pausing 
pausing and listening for a moment. And what I was hearing was that children need to be socially, emotionally ready to go to kindergarten. Well, all kids develop at different rates. Children need to be able to wait for their turn. Those types of things people typically think about kindergarten-like behaviors or school-like behaviors. Children need to be toileted, potty trained. In a kindergarten classroom, there's one teacher with potentially 20 children, roughly. In a preschool classroom, there's a 1 to 10 ratio at maximum. So there's more staff in the classroom. There again, there's more children that are going through the toileting process. But that really throws something into the wind when you've got multiple children that aren't toilet trained that are going to kindergarten sometimes. And sometimes that's been a barrier for kindergarten teachers trying to teach at times, right? But then also thinking about children that may have an IEP that already have an identified special need. When there's a process where children are assessed, they also ask, really important to make sure that children are assessed in a way that meets their IEP goals, meaning if there's certain accommodations, those accommodations are still met during that assessment process or that screening process for kindergarten so that we're making sure that we're providing every opportunity to show what they can do. What I'm hearing, the undertone here is, yeah, okay, we get it. We understand the need for change, but maybe you should have given it a little bit more time. This seems a bit rushed and it sounds like possibly, you know, without having a go at the state too much, maybe there's not enough guidance coming out of the state as well. Obviously, it's something that we're going to continue to select to cover with you as this unfolds to see exactly how it does unfold. The thing I wanted to pick up with both of you is play-based learning has suddenly come into the spotlight. Why is that, Amory? Why has that suddenly now become so like another issue as well? And the two are definitely linked. And it's interesting, it has been interesting to us that sort of both, so both of them are both the kindergarten entry age change as well as play-based learning has legislation attached to it. And both of them are fairly new in terms of the impact on public schools. And so it is interesting that they both came out at the same time. And some people are asking the question, some of the background related to the kindergarten entry age is that there was a vast age difference, right, in in kindergarten classrooms in the past. So you could potentially have children who hadn't yet turned five and children who were six or going to be turning six during the school year. And so some people are wondering, right, because play-based learning has the opportunity to really differentiate those developmental differences in a classroom. And that is different from more teacher-directed learning, where you kind of have a much more focused goal that you're working on for children. And so trying to adjust that goal in a teacher-directed lesson is more difficult. But within play-based learning, using play as a teaching strategy that your instruction is embedded within really has the opportunity, again, to differentiate that instruction. So some people are asking, why didn't we try a little more play-based learning before we adjusted the kindergarten entry age? But, you know, it's coming to the forefront because there is a lot of research that shows that young children, kindergarten kindergarten age children, first grade age children, what their brain is ready to participate in in terms of learning is best supported through play. And so that research is sort of just finally finding its way into the implementation of teaching and instruction in kindergarten and first grade classrooms. Now, of course, ESCOM provides services Mm -hmm. for young people as well as obviously adults as well. So, you know, you're uniquely placed, I suppose one could say, in this area. I, I know that you hosted, I think, 
something called Digging Into Play fairly recently. Talk to us a little bit about that, if you would, Diane. Sure. So last year we hosted a conference on, specifically on play and started with the adults um, having an opportunity to actually play themselves and go through all those different types of experiences where they had materials that they could truly explore, first by themselves, then side by side with somebody, more like parallel play, from solitary to parallel, and then in a more interactive way, and then eventually cooperative play. So you sort of build the skills based upon development. But as the adults actually got to practice that too, they sort of were really engaged with the process of like, well, when I'm cooperating with my peers, this really feels different than when when I'm playing by myself. And when they've got materials that you can share, and you learn how to negotiate, and you learn how to do conflict resolution, even having to wait for materials sometimes is hard for children. It's also hard for adults. And then we also shared opportunities for different types of play in the afternoon as well. And we've been doing that a series now as well um, that Amory is actually a part of with Melanie Smith-Severa as well. I'm focused on kindergarten teachers in particular on how to promote play within your classroom. Can you expand on that a little bit, Mary? So we have a play-based learning initiative involves some training as well as some coaching. So we are in districts where we go in and we provide training around basically three areas, the development of executive function skills in young children, the development of social competencies, and then how you use play as an instructional strategy in your classroom, and how you also assess children's learning while they are playing. And then we go into classrooms and we check on the implementation of those um, strategies. And then we're also working with a leadership team within the district to really build their systemic implementation of this work. And it's been really exciting. I was in a district this week, so I got a chance to ask. um, Teachers were reflecting on the use of play in their classrooms, and I got a chance to ask them about any changes that they've noticed in children's behavior, and they both commented and shared that they have seen a decrease in, you know, acting out behaviors, right? Because again, play really serves that purpose to help build children's ability to engage in their learning environment. And I guess that was something Mm -hmm. when Diane was talking that I wanted to just, I guess, emphasize is that, you know, when children are entering kindergarten, they are certainly working on math skills and literacy skills, but they're also learning how to access learning in the school environment. So things like executive function skills and social competencies are really important for us to be able to participate in learning. And children also need to learn those things in their first school experience, public school experience, which is kindergarten. And so play really supports their ability to do that and sets that foundation for later on in other grade levels for them to be successful. So teachers were absolutely noticing the impact of play. Right. And we also know that for children that don't have executive function skills later in life too, their ability to attend to be engaged in their learning wanes. Mm -hmm. And so then often children are on a trajectory that doesn't get them where we want them to be. We know that all kids can learn, but we also have to provide methods and supports for them to do it. And our environments have to be engaging. Our environments have to provide the best materials that don't necessarily cost money. They could be making materials and creating their own things, but to bring their creativity to life and to also provide an opportunity for children to learn how to interact with one another in a peaceful way, in an interactive way that supports learning, learn, learning how to negotiate, learning how to take a turn, learning how to say, hey, can I try that too? We take these things for granted, but not everybody comes to kindergarten for sure with those skills. And our job is actually to support that development because they are skills. They're not necessarily just developmental, they're skill development, and we can provide the tools 
source for that. Like we said, obviously another very important issue, which you know seems to have been overshadowed a bit by the the kindergarten thing. So thank you both for obviously explaining that. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, and it's such a big topic, and it is as I say, it is something that we will come back to. But I just want to ask you both this final question. I'll start with Anne Marie. What's the takeaway you want people to to like really get out of this when they when they listen to this interview? I think that well, I think Diane said it before that the entry age change is not necessarily a bad thing for children. I think in the long run it is a good thing for school environments, but we need to be thoughtful and remember that young children have some really specific types of needs related to assessment, related to teaching, and so as much as we can, again, to hold that in the forefront of everyone's mind as they're moving through this decision-making process in terms of responding to the legislation and implementing the legislation. Uh, So yeah, to hold both of those things as they move forward. I would think also just for me, um, I want to make sure families know about this change so that come August, they're not surprised. We also know that in many of the larger districts, as much as 90% of children may register like the week before school. So for planning purposes for district, it's important, but also really for families, it's important to know where their kids will be next year and to know that families do have a voice and they know their children. So we also need to respect that piece of it too. So I think as waivers come in, I'm sure districts will be looking at that specifically, especially the first year. And this is really a, probably a two-year process, I think, because part of the backlog may also be an infant toddler care, because if there's more preschool slots that are needed, there's a license capacity within a building. So when infant toddlers age out of their classrooms, will there be a place for them to go as well? So it's a multifaceted situation. It certainly is. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you for giving us like a sort of more of a top level. So like on, on both of these subjects, like I said, it is something that we will come back to. But I think the big takeaway, we've mentioned this already, is don't leave it to the last minute and mm-hmm. start talking to your school districts now. Mm-hmm. Find out more about it. Learn yourselves as as parents. Find out what you know how these could affect you. Make some better and smarter decisions, obviously, for your kids so that uh, there isn't disappointment further down the line. To you both, thank you ever so much. Diane Gozemba and Anne-Marie Davison, both from EastCon. Thanks so much. And if you need more information or want your questions answered about the new kindergarten changes, then you need to contact your home school district directly. You can find their details using the official state website public-edsite, that's E-D-S-I-G-H-T dot C-T dot gov. Connecticut East this week is made possible by EastCon. Want to finish high school? Enroll today in one of EastCon's free high school diploma completion programs offered virtually and in person. Earn your GED, NEDP or credit diploma in as little as six months to a year with small classes and personalised attention. Succeed from registration to graduation with flexible classes that suit your busy lifestyle. Visit eastcon.org slash get started today and take your first steps towards a brighter future. EastCon, you've got this. Nutmeg Pharmacy, your local independent pharmacy serving Higginham, Moodus, Centerbrook and Taffville, reminding you to get your flu, RSV and COVID vaccines now and protect you and your family. Open seven days a week and with free local delivery. Find your nearest Nutmeg Pharmacy at nutmegpharmacy.com. And Healing Therapies Through Sharing provides oncology massage and other bodywork modalities for those facing the challenges of a cancer diagnosis. Cancer treatments can be brutal. Our professionals can help with hands-on services, support and resources. Cancer doesn't quit and neither do we. Find out more at healingtherapiesct.org. 
Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. Governor Lamont has announced a first-of-its-kind registered apprenticeship program in the state to train workers for home-based childcare jobs. The state and the nation is experiencing a childcare crisis of not enough services for parents with children and escalating costs putting childcare outside the reach of lower-income families, impacting their ability to work. Dante Bartolomeo is the commissioner for the Connecticut Department of Labor and said registered apprenticeship programs are the perfect way to increase jobs in the sector. Registered apprentices work and earn while they're learning. They are hired onto the job to become an apprentice. This allows them the opportunity to further their education, which they may not otherwise be able to do without an income. And registered apprenticeship programs help standardize the skills and the training that assures that these are quality programs across the profession. Governor Lamont said the program is the best way to increase services in the sector quickly, just as they had to do back when COVID-19 was at its height. We had to keep daycare going. It wasn't easy. You kept it going. We got it going next to all of our hospitals where amazing nurses and doctors can be there. And it was a reminder for you, it was a reminder for me, just how incredibly vital daycare and childcare is for these kids in our economy. The new program is being coordinated by three agencies in the state with the goal of partnering with families and communities to create culturally and linguistically appropriate care for children and to improve the quality of early care and education in child development. The Long Island Sounds Future Fund announced 39 grants recently totaling $12 million to environmental organizations and local governments in Connecticut, New York and New England to improve the health of Long Island Sound. Over the years, money to help protect and restore the sound has increased 1,000 from an original $4 million a year to a current yearly spend of $40 million. U.S. Senator for Connecticut Chris Murphy congratulated the award winners but also urged them to make sure the sound is open to everyone. We will not be able to continue to grow support for Line On Sound if few people can ever get to the sound. This really is a crisis in Connecticut. It's been a crisis for a long time, but it's one that we just can't continue to ignore the fact that there is such severe limitations on the ability of the public to get to Long Island Sound to be able to enjoy it. Murphy said the sound is a big driver in Connecticut's economy, but is restricted to those with middle to higher incomes and doesn't provide for those on lower income levels from enjoying the natural resource. Two Connecticut grant awardees include farms near the sound and projects to reduce agricultural waste from them entering the watershed. And one New York project will train volunteers to cultivate oyster gardens to help with reef restoration. Hartford Healthcare's Nachog Hospital held its first military mental health symposium recently in Norwich, focusing on preventing military suicides. Around 50 mental health providers from across the state, as well as military representatives, attended the event, with many more participating remotely via Zoom. One speaker at the event was Tessa Harrington, who lives in Ledger, and told her story about her late husband, combat medic John Harrington, who died by suicide. We would talk and make plans about dealing with his struggles. We had friends that were counselors. We had plans for him to see people. He was in aviation. So any sort of mental health visit would compromise his readiness level, or at least that's what he would tell me. U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, who is a member of the Senate Committee on Veterans Affairs, was a key speaker at the event and said more needs to be done to help the nation's military personnel. Part of the reason they're calling for physical issues, it's competency and physical performance, but also mental health issues that are reflected in drug use and other problems that really should prevent them from serving in some instances, but it 
also reflects the fact that our military is in a sense a mirror of our society. Suicide rates among the nation's military personnel are rising, according to the United Service Organization, USO, a nonprofit that provides services to the military and their families. In a recent article, they cited military suicide as being four times higher than deaths that occurred during military operations, with the U.S. Army showing the largest increase in deaths by suicide. A 24-7 helpline is available for anyone with suicidal thoughts by calling the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 988 or text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741741 or visit the website at preventsuicidect.org. Connecticut's Office of Health Strategy has granted Hartford Healthcare permission to officially stop labour and delivery services at Wyndham Hospital three years after the healthcare provider took the decision and sparked community opposition. But the decision does come with other terms and conditions the healthcare provider must adhere to. The hospital must continue to offer prenatal and postpartum care as well as transportation for birth parents and they must also commission an independent study on the feasibility of creating a birthing centre to serve patients in the Wyndham County area. The agreement also requires Hartford Healthcare to maintain labour and delivery services as well as its newborn nursery at Backers Hospital located in Norwich, about 16 miles from Wyndham Hospital. AFT Connecticut, part of the Wyndham United to Save Our Healthcare organisation, said in a statement about the decision, quote, this agreement does not let Hartford Healthcare executives off the hook for assuring the vital maternity care Wyndham area mothers and families need and deserve. And pharmaceutical giant Pfizer announced recently it is realigning the company worldwide in a bid to save $3.5 billion in costs by the end of 2024, despite going ahead with a $43 billion acquisition of cancer drug firm Seagen, headquartered in Seattle, which is awaiting regulatory approval. The restructuring includes a number of job losses from various Pfizer facilities in the US and abroad. Pfizer's largest R&D centre is based in Groton and employs over 2,600 scientists and staff, but Pfizer has so far refused to say how many of those jobs may be affected. In a recent third quarter 2023 Pfizer earnings presentation call, the company expected a decline in their Paxlovid and COVID mRNA vaccines due to lower public uptake now the pandemic has declined. A Pfizer statement said, quote, part of the effort will result in some job losses across a number of our locations including Groton. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 